These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. This is the third and final part of the greatest epic of Ugarit, and probably Canaan as a whole, the Ball Cycle. If you haven't heard the preceding two episodes, that's probably sort of okay. They were kind of all over the place. That's just how the story goes. We're missing big chunks of it, and the parts we do have don't always make a whole lot of sense. For a bit of context, we ended up last time with Ball arguing with his carpenter, Kothar Wachasis, the craftsman god, about whether or not there should be any windows in his new palace. Kothar said that of course you don't want to have a whole palace with no windows anywhere, but then Ball was worried about his three daughters being creeped on and didn't want any windows. Then, for no apparent reason, Ball goes and conquers 90 cities, and somewhere in his pointless orgy of destruction, he comes to the realization that, yes, his palace really would be nicer with a couple of windows. When he tells Kothar about this, Kothar says, I told you so, and then builds a couple of windows. Is this great literature? It kind of is. And the strangeness of it only enhances what we can learn just from reading through the story. This is just how the people of Ugarit and Canaan thought and wrote. That's nice to know for the sake of learning about Canaan, but actually as we move forward into the Iron Age, this same general area, the space around Canaan proper, is going to give rise to at least three major cultural groups, the Aramaeans, Chaldeans, and Israelites, who will each come to play a substantial role in history. All three of these groups are Western Semitic groups. All three of them are related to the Canaanites, even if these exact relations are sometimes unclear because of the ambiguity of who the Canaanites really are. Anyway, I could also rant about what is great literature, and I still might, but not in this episode. Instead, we will pick up right as Ball is looking out of his newly constructed windows. Now, these windows are pretty fancy. Not only were they well-constructed, because Kothar is the best divine craftsman, but they also faced out on a fantastic view. He's at the very top of a mountain, covered in clouds. And you really wonder why he was worried about anyone creeping on his daughters, but whatever. The view is unparalleled. Anyway... Now that Ball has a window, he decides that the very best thing he can do with a window is to give a mighty speech to the entire world. This is completely normal. I give speeches out my window all the time. We don't hear how his speech begins, but we know that as soon as he speaks, the clouds roll away and all of the high places of the earth shake from the sound of his voice. Ball then asks why the earth trembles suggesting that the whole earth righteously fears him. Then Baal turns to the east and calls out specifically to the god Mot, the lord of death. Like the word Mot literally means death, and that's this guy's name. There are a few subtle characters in the Canaanite heavens, but Mot is perhaps the least subtle of all of them. Anyway, Ball says that he's interested in fully establishing his dominion over all things, and to that end, Mott needs to come over and give submission to Ball. 
Then, having said all these things, he turns to his messengers and makes sure that they heard all that. Because Baal is up on top of a mountain, giving a speech out his window. There's no way that Mott hurt what Baal said, and was probably completely unaware of Baal's grand gesture entirely. And so Baal gives instructions to his loyal messengers about how to get down to the underworld. Though the places he names are obscure to us now, it's quite likely that he sends these messengers to the modern Straits of Gibraltar, which would continue to represent the underworld from time to time until even Greek myth. Anyway, Mott, it seems, lives in a palace that's the mirror image of Baal's palace. Where Baal is at the top of a mountain, Mount Sapan, Mott is at the very bottom of a pit. Where Baal is isolated, Mott is in the middle of a town called the pit. And where Baal's palace is splendid, Mott's house is covered with filth. Don't think for a second that it should be unclear who's the good guy and the bad guy here. The death god of other myths is not always a cartoon villain, but in this particular one he am unambiguously is. The messengers are given warnings not to let the hazards of the underworld eat them up and to reach the death god and be properly polite before announcing the message. The actual message there to give sounds more or less like an invitation to a housewarming party. Though again, parts are missing, and I at least am almost certain that Baal proclaims his kingship in a way that's not terribly humble. Mott, in turn, gives a message back to the messengers. These messengers run back up to Baal and repeat Mott's message. Mott's message begins cryptically, asking rhetorically what sort of appetites Mott possesses. Likely, Baal included an invitation to a feast as part of his message to his fellow deity in the underworld. How much, Mott asks, will he eat? Enough to fill his two hands? Enough to fill seven bowls? Enough to fill a whole river? But then Mott's message takes a darker turn, saying that yes, he will come to the feast, alongside all his death god kinsmen, and they will all eat at Baal's table, and then Mott will stab Baal. Apparently, at some point in the past, Baal killed a god named Latan, the fleeing and twisty seven-headed serpent, and Mott has been harboring a grudge for quite some time. Mott then threatens to tear Baal to pieces and eat him alive. We lose about 12 lines here, and when we return, Mott is still describing how he will eat Baal, this time like a dried olive plopped through the lips. Well, Baal, who the text reminds us is both the mightiest of gods and the great cloud rider, responds to this message with stark terror. He immediately grabs his two servants and sends a very short message, announcing that Baal surrenders to Mott and will forever be his servant. And he does not appear to be faking it here. Baal appears to have genuinely discarded all his heroism and given in because Mott is just really, really scary. 
And I want to bring up another literary trope, sometimes called the criterion of embarrassment, that's often used to supposedly prove the truth of the modern Christian Bible. The argument goes that since the Bible contains things that are shameful or embarrassing about the very people who are writing it, then they would not have included those details unless they were true. Well, look here at what's happening to Ball. This is about as abjectly shameful as it gets. In fact, it's going to get worse. Why did the Canaanites write these things down? I'm definitely not saying that the Ball Cycle is a factually true historical account, and I'm not saying that the Christian Bible is false. Rather, what I am saying is that we're if we're going to discuss the truth and the content of religious texts, we need to use better discussions and arguments and concepts than something like the criterion of embarrassment. It's frankly embarrassing. Anyway, that's related to nothing at all. And so the messengers go down to Mott and humbly offer Ball's submission. And Mott goes on a long speech, which is mostly lost, but really does seem to be an evil villain rant. Actually, a lot of what happens next is missing, but probably almost all of it is just feasting and praising of the various gods. Specifically, Mott, now that he's basically won, does now accept Ball's invitation to a house party. And what we can read of this party consists entirely of Ball flattering Mott in the most abject and pathetic manner possible. Then, Mott requires Ball to go tell all the gods that Mott is great and Ball is a punk. Now, I will say there's at least one reputable scholarly translation that says that at this point, Ball refuses to humble himself before the other gods and instead tries to enlist the other gods in a rebellion against Mott. And there are enough missing chunks here that I can maybe kind of see what they mean, but with the caveat that I myself cannot read Ugaritic, the translation where Ball remains humbled that I'm mostly reading from makes more sense to me here, at least in the context of everything else. Anyway, a bunch of gods are feasting in the Divine Council, because of course, what else would they be doing? When someone, possibly L, wonders aloud where Ball has been lately. Right at that moment, Ball arises and approaches El, passing all the gods who were busy eating and drinking. What he says is lost, but maybe El asks, who sent Ball like a messenger? And there's a bit of a line indicating that something is being reviled. My best guess is that Ball admits here that he's a punk and Ball is the best and most awesome. Now, having done what was demanded of him, Ball is then ordered by Mott to make a journey down to the underworld. He's instructed to take all his possessions and family with him, and then the message says, Descend to the afterlife, the house of freedom. Be counted among the inmates of hell. And then you will know, O oh God, that you are dead. Ball's response to these instructions is to have sex with a cow out in his field. He mounts the cow sexually 640 times, 
And then this cow gives birth to a baby boy. This child gets a number of presents from his father, and we don't get his name, and we don't hear anything about him after this point, partly because, of course, the text is a little bit damaged. Having committed this peculiar act, Ball then descends down into the underworld, where, just as promised, Mott rips Ball apart, seemingly without resistance, and then eats him alive. Thus ends the mightiest of gods and heroes. Now, there is almost certainly a level of symbolism here, an acknowledgement that death conquers all things in the end, and perhaps only by having children, either with women or with farm animals, we can avoid it in even the smallest thing. Or perhaps there's something to do with the seasons. Uh, there's a little bit of imagery where Ball's death involves uh, droughts and summer dryness. And eh, who really knows? Uh, people have been debating this for a very long time, inconclusively. Who knows what'll happen? In the end, no amount of heroism can save one from the ultimate fate ruled over by Mott. Ball's faithful messengers, who had carried his word and his will across the heavens and the earth, depart from the land of the dead to deliver one final message. Standing before mighty El, father of the years, though certainly not father of the year, the messengers proclaim, We went to the edge of the earth, to the limits of the water. We came to that pleasant land out beyond, to the beautiful field of death's realm. We came upon Ball, fallen to the earth. Dead is mightiest Ball. Perished is the prince, lord of the earth. El, father of all things, falls out of his chair at the news. He catches himself briefly on his footstool before sinking down to the earth. He grabs a fistful of dirt and pours it over his head, a gesture of deep mourning, and he discards his divine robes for rough sackcloth. He starts to cut his flesh, his arms and his face and his chest, that in the pain he might feel anything at all to distract himself from the greater anguish of Ball's death. Annette, Ball's passionate and temperamental sister, simply can't believe it, and she goes out in hunting gear, expecting to quench her emotions in red, bloody vengeance. And yet when she arrives at the land of death and sees Ball's corpse, she can do nothing but emulate mighty El in mourning displays. As Shapshu, the lamp, lamp of heaven, descends for the day, she passes across the underworld, and there in that land, just past the sunset, and completely unexpected, she spots the dead Baal, and the sun herself weeps for him. Annette calls out to Shapshu to help her carry Baal's corpse away, and they load the god up on top of the sun which then carries the corpse back to his palace atop Mount Sapan. There he's buried, and Annette, at the head of the funeral, sacrifices 
70 buffalo, 70 oxen, 70 sheep, 70 deer, 70 goats, and 70 donkeys. Then get smashed on divine wine to just not feel anything anymore. Now once everyone's recovered emotionally from the shock of Baal's death, the gods assemble once again to discuss the matter of Baal's successor. And that begins by petitioning El that one of Athiret's sons should take Baal's place as ruler over the heavens. Without much debate, El simply agrees and asks Athirat to select one of her sons to be king. She begins by suggesting someone we have no idea about. Archaeology hasn't seen this guy anywhere outside of this one context, and we can't even really guess what vowels might belong in his name. El, however, whoever this guy is, vetoes this guy, for it seems that this obscure god is simply way too physically weak to measure up to Baal. He can't run very fast, he's no good with lances, perhaps might be crippled, it isn't clear? Anyway, Athirat is asked to make another selection, and this time she picks Athtar the Strong. Now this is a much better choice, and Attar is generally accepted and allowed to ascend the throne formerly occupied by Mighty Baal. Except that as soon as he sits on that glorious throne, it's clear that he simply doesn't measure up. His feet do not reach the footstool. His head does not reach the headrest. Facing the physical comparison between himself and his deceased predecessor, Aftar admits that he cannot be the king and descends the throne the way he had come. The Council of Gods then apparently dissolves inconclusively. A few days later, Annette longs for her brother Baal. Annette, her heart always full of passion, simply can't move on. And so she comes up on Mott, the god of death, and grabs him by the back of his cloak, crying, Mott, give me back my brother. Mott turns to her with a sinister yet innocent look on his face, and replies with fairly creepy speech. He asks what Annette wants explaining that he was just on his way walking through the hills and fields of the earth, and his appetite was nothing short of all the earth. Just then, Maud explains, when he was hungry, he saw mightiest ball and proceeded to eat him in one crunch like a giant eating a lamb. Annette is shocked. And she simply stands there as Mott gets away after his gloating. And the sun, the divine lamp Shapshu, crosses the sky overhead. She shakes herself out of it and is overwhelmed with rage and pursues Mott relentlessly. Days turn into months, but eventually she tracks down the Lord of Death and seizes him. With a sword, she splits him. With a sieve, she winnows him. With a fire, she burns him. With millstones, she grinds him. In a field, she sows him. The birds eat his flesh. Fowl devour his parts. Flesh to flesh cries out. That last bit, flesh crying to flesh, tells us that the god of death isn't simply dead. Perhaps as lord of death, 
he himself possesses an immortality beyond other things. And yet the tiny pieces into which he's been torn will need to seek each other out over time and recombine before the death god can again be an embodied effective force. Or at least that's sort of a modern way of understanding it. It's not completely clear that that's how they understood it back then. It's not completely clear what they were thinking of back then. Meanwhile, death himself has effectively died. And while the effects of that should theoretically be pretty far-reaching, the important thing here is that Baal's death in particular is now called into question. Now, if this seems odd, consider that it indicates that death is not an event as we often think of it in modern times, but rather a condition which falls upon a person and in which they remain indefinitely. It's a bit like moving to California. Even if you can confirm that a friend has moved to California, if you later hear news that California has sunk into the sea, you'll naturally wonder whether your friend is still in California, and thus in really bad shape, or if they managed to escape somehow the catastrophe which had fallen the state. Similarly, L is wondering basically this. He's having some sort of dream vision thingy, but mostly he seems to be pondering the matter to himself. Since Baal Haddad, being the storm god, is the lord of rain, then logically, if Baal has returned to life, then there should be some rain-related omen occurring in the weather. If the rains have ceased completely, however, then this is a sure sign that Baal is dead. The reasoning here, incidentally, is a very strong match to the early sort of weather divination that will go on to lay the groundwork for all manner of astrology and fortune-telling in the future. The specific sign that El is searching for is that the heavens will rain with oil and the dry riverbeds will run with honey. And then, sure enough, in El's dream vision, this very thing comes to pass. El leaps out of his dream into waking. He jumps up onto his footstool. He smiles and laughs in relief because, thanks to this vision, He's now certain that somewhere, somehow, Baal still lives. Immediately, he calls out to Anat and tells her the good news. And Anat is charged with sending a message to Shapshu the Divine Lamp to start looking for Baal as she travels across the heavens every day. We lose a good chunk of lines at this point, but in the missing section, it appears that Shapshu locates Baal brings him home alive and safe, and there's much rejoicing. Now that rejoicing is cut short when Baal hears what was going on in his absence, discovering that the sons of Athiret contested for his throne, and apparently some descendants of Yam did as well. Now he blindsides each of these punks with the business end of his mace, dropping them to the ground, and then he can sit mightily in his throne, and all is well for seven years. Now, at the end of seven years, who should show up but our old friend Mott? 
And for real, I wish dearly that I could talk to some ancient Canaanite priest and get a, a deep, solid explanation of how this guy sees the supernatural, how, how he sees these sometimes illogical things in these stories that can so strain modern imagining. There is no comment that Mott is supposed to be dead, just a complaint by Mott that he was humiliated. He considers being split by a sword and burned with fire and being ripped apart and all that other stuff a humiliation. Anyway, Mott is upset, and he's come to Ball to complain, and specifically to say that he's going to offer Ball a deal. Now, he wants to eat Ball, but he will settle for one of Ball's brothers instead. Also, he either promises to consume all the humans on the earth as a sort of promise that death is going to come to all mortals, or perhaps he says that if Ball does not do as Mott demands, he will eat all the humans on the earth right now in grand apocalyptic fashion. Sadly, we're missing Ball's response to this threat, but from the other parts of the story, we can reconstruct the basic outline. It seems that Ball pretends to go along with Mott's demands and feeds him not just one, but a number of gods, claiming that they are Ball's brothers. However, somehow in all of this, Mott is deceived as to who exactly he's eating. When the text finally restores, Mott is screaming in bitter rage. Look, Ball has fed me my own brothers as food. I have eaten the sons of my own mother. Mott meets Ball at the top of Ball's home mountain, Sapan. And I'll just read you the final showdown in full, which would have been sung or chanted like poetry, the climax of great song, and it misses a lot of the wordplay that's clearly visible in the original Ugaritic. They eye each other like fighters. Mott is fierce. Ball is fierce. They gore each other like buffalo. Mott is fierce. Ball is fierce. They bite each other like serpents. Mott is fierce. Ball is fierce. They drag each other like runners. Mott falls. Ball falls. Neither is dead, however, and as they're getting up for another round of violence, Shapshu the Divine Lamp brings a message from El, the Father of Gods. Shapshu tells Mott that he must no longer fight against Baal, for if he does, El will remove his right of kingship over the dead and break his royal divine scepter. And when this is said, for the first time in the story, it's Mott who's afraid. Mott trembles at the voice of El's messenger and allows Ball to be peacefully enthroned in his dominion palace. Thus ends the Ball cycle, with Ball back on his throne upon the mountain Sapan, ruling over everything that the Canaanites worried about from day to day. The very ending of the story is partly damaged, but there's enough to see that it ends with a celebratory feast and a praising of the many gods involved. At the very end, the scribe Ilamalku, the Shubanite, signs his name and dedicates the whole work to King Nikmadu of Ugarit. 
And so what do we make of this ball cycle? If you think you have a clear idea of what's going on after what I've just read, you're simply wrong. What I read was a summary of a longer work, and not just a summary, but a summary of mostly one translation, specifically the one put out by the Society of Biblical Literature, usually quite a reliable source of text despite having biblical in their name. I did work with a few other translations, but even these translations are hindered by the fact that perhaps as much as 60% of the text is damaged by some estimates. And even if we had the whole thing, what we have is very clearly an edited work, mostly or wholly written by one scribe, Ilimalku, sometimes read Eli Melech. How closely the ordering and themes of Ilimalku's writing conform to the story as it would have been known in other cities or in prior centuries is unknowable until archaeologists find more text to compare. And that's just the complexity of the textual history. If we were to really get into it, even just the text as we have it has so much literary complexity that it's comparable to any similar passage of the Bible in terms of length and could easily fill books of deep discourse had it been obsessively studied for millennia. But that isn't to say that having now listened to a version of the Baal cycle, as well as a version of all the history of myth I've covered on the show, it's not to say that you've learned nothing. Rather, this is, this is more a warning which I really probably should have stated a bit more often on this show that, as with any scholarly discipline, there's always more to explore and deeper to go. And the nature of the oldest stories is such that if I'm your only source on these things, it's best to take the knowledge you gained from here and consider it with a good deal of humility. Not only do I not always get things exactly right, but often there's quite a lot more going on that either I know nothing about or don't have the time and patience to put into a podcast. As to the relevance of the ball cycle and the last nine episodes of Canaanite stuff in general, well, they're people with stories, and these are the oldest stories. Some people will study these tales for their connections with the Bible and Israel, some for insights on how the numerous Western Semitic cultures came to influence Mesopotamia, and some for a window on the great power politics of the Bronze Age Levant. All of these things are interesting, and a lot of them have been mentioned here, but I've deliberately avoided as much as possible framing my story as Canaan in the light of Israel, or in the light of Mesopotamia or Egypt or wherever. Instead, what I hope I've done is I've looked at the Canaanites for the Canaanites, because they were their own people, as much as any group is their own, and their story is worth telling simply because they have a story that we can tell. And what I'll leave you with is that if you're someone with an interest in Canaan, or the ancient Near East in general, which really should be pretty much everyone who's gotten this far in the podcast, then you really, really, really need to be looking at these cultures principally for themselves, and only secondarily as they relate to some specific topic. 
Although Bible study is not the only discipline that does this, it's probably the worst. With well-credentialed people reading bits and pieces of ancient history, seeing them only through the lens of a frankly completely unrelated work, and grabbing just bits and pieces when they seem to prove a point for a thesis. As we go forward, we're going to look at Arameans, Chaldeans, and Israelites, who will all have roots right here in these Canaanite episodes. And yet the focus of what actually is going on and what these people are producing and saying is going to be on their own times and their own terms and what they do for themselves. Having said that, connections can in fact be valuable. And once someone is an expert on both cultures on their own terms, then there's a lot more room to draw connections between things. I would not go so far as to call myself an expert on really anything. But next episode is going to be something I did not initially expect to do. And I'll be doing it with an attitude of humility, exploring just one of many facets of the Hebrew Bible. We'll be looking specifically at relationships between the first 11 chapters of the biblical book of Genesis and Mesopotamian myth, a much requested and highly controversial subject. My hope is that I'm, even though I'm not some great expert here, but that nearly everyone reading through these stories uh, in the modern times have historically started with a profound understanding of the Bible from which they've branched off into Mesopotamian history. I, however, am some hundred episodes into Mesopotamian history and only relatively recently branching out into the Bible. I do not intend to have the final word on the subject, nor am I slamming some great debunkings down or whatever. It'll just be us looking at some things that a lot of people are very interested in. So join us next time for Adam, Abel, Noah, Babel, and a bit more as we look at the book of Genesis in an ancient Mesopotamian context. Thank you for listening.